Good evening, She Rises. So sorry, that um, seems like we're having some Facebook issues tonight. I'm gonna just give a minute, hopefully for you girls to get notified. Hey, Tommy Lynn, sorry, we've been trying for several minutes. Facebook kept kicking me off. So we'll see how this lasts. Good evening, Judy. Hey, Erica. Hi, Marianne. Just giving everyone a minute to start getting notified. Hey, Bev, how are you? Hopefully, Facebook is not going to kick me off. But anyway, we're going to go ahead because we're already running a few minutes behind. And we know this is a little bit more in-depth study, just as last week's was we're going to look at the reality of heaven. So I just want to pray real quick and get started. Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to again gather from wherever we are across this planet to just open up your word, to look at what it is that you have to say is the future inheritance, the future abode for your children, for believers, those who have put their hope in you. Lord, I just pray tonight that you would help us weed out misconceptions and false teachings and dreamed up ideas and instead look at just your word alone to see what it is that you are preparing for us. The hope, the promise that we have of eternal life. I pray for every woman that comes on here to dig in and study. I pray a blessing on her life, that her faith would be strengthened and increased, and that she would know, that she would know, that she would know what her hope and her future is as your daughter. We ask all of these things in your holy and matchless name, Jesus. Amen and amen. All right, ladies. Good evening, Crystal. Hey, Lynn. Hey, Kaylee. Kendra. Hello from North Carolina. All right. It's all right, Amanda. We had trouble um, getting connected tonight through Facebook. So you're just fine. You haven't missed anything. All right. Let's get started. Obviously, since we started with the bad news last week that actually can leave many of us feeling anxious and fearful and sad almost like a cancer diagnosis this week we're going to get the good news the cure i like to say in better terms heaven so just like hell, it is a place of great debate, discussion, and even misconceptions. It's truth over trend, faith over fear. <laughs> it's our overwear gear. Um, well, not mine. <laughs> a friend of mine, their company, um, and I absolutely love all of their uh, Christian statements. So... All right, so just like hell, as I said, it's a place of great debate, great discussion, misconception. And through the generations, men and women obviously have taught about it, and many have turned it into a place that they have dreamed up and to their own imagination. But what we want to see is what does God's word really say alone about 
heaven, about our eternal state. In other words, is it a fairy tale? A state of mind, as we talked about last week, that the New Age could teach? Is it the one eternal place that actually does exist for eternity and is not just temporary? Where is it? And what goes on there? Well, I want to take a look this week to see what Scripture unveils for us. But before we do, just like I did last week, I want to cover a few misconceptions that are taught, that are believed, especially among our generation, about heaven. Then when we're done, you'll be able to compare these misconceptions back to the Word of God to see if they're actually misconceptions. All right? Number one, heaven is a place full of clouds and floating spirits, right? So we're, we're thinking of this place just full, loaded with these fluffy, beautiful clouds or spirits or floating among the clouds. Number two, believers live up there in heaven, in the sky forever. Number three, it will be a never-ending worship service of stringed instruments, just like a church service forever. Will it? We will be given wings when we die as we become like the angels. You'll hear that quite often. Uh, when my mom died, people would say, oh, your mom gained, gained her wings. You have an angel looking down on you from heaven. Uh, now, I know scripturally none of that is true. And uh, the worst thing that we can ever do is begin to make up lies about places in order to comfort people. Uh, but for me to know it's a misconception, I would have to know the word. So uh, we want to make sure we understand why it's a misconception. Kathy, I'm going over a list of about seven misconceptions taught about heaven right now in this generation. Number five, we won't be able to recognize one another because we'll have new bodies and new names. Number six, heaven is eternal relaxation, lying around all the time, resting in peace. And number seven, all paths, all paths lead to heaven. And you end up there if you're good enough here on earth. So as we hear many of these ideas, many of these beliefs or teachings about heaven in our generation, tonight we're going to look back at Scripture, not someone's book, not someone's opinion, not just a basic writing. We're just going to stay in the Scripture, as you know, that's what I like to do, to discover what is consistently true and what picture unfolds for us only in the Word of God about heaven. But before we do that, we're going to look at number seven on our misconception list, because the first thing that we even have to discern and test back is 
do all paths lead to heaven? And because we need to know before we're going to heaven if we're actually going to make it there. This idea of universalism, of those who teach that all paths, it doesn't matter what you believe, who you believe in, what you're following, what you're participating in, it doesn't matter. As long as all those things help you get back to God, you're going to heaven. Well, I want to look at scripture to see what scripture has to say uh, before we even teach that or come into that belief. All right, let's start. John 14, John 14, 6. And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All right? Tell me, who comes to God, who comes to dwell in his presence, who will come to see God face to face outside of Yeshua, Jesus the Christ? Who? According to that scripture, who is going to come to God outside of Jesus? And he says no one. Absolutely no one is coming to the Father except through Jesus. So now you have to decide whether Jesus is making a true statement or whether he's a liar and a lunatic. Because it's not very difficult to comprehend the word used there, no one. <laughs> All right, go with me now to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, and I want to look at chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Okay, chapter 6, 9 through 10. Here's what the word of the Lord says. Do you not know? So Paul's saying, look, I'm asking you a question. Do you not understand this? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Answer me this. According to this scripture, what could we be deceived by Satan over? According to this scripture, how could Satan deceive us? What could we actually believe from this set of scriptures, according to the word, only to find out we're deceived? It tells us if you believe that any people who live that lifestyle, who practice it, who excuse it, who justify it, will inherit the kingdom of God, eternal life, heaven, you have deceived yourself and you are, an, you are an, a deceiver to others. Right? So 
he's given us the understanding exactly sandra it is the lie that your lifestyle that your actions that your behavior does not matter he tells us here anyone who is living like this not that this was your past or you have sinned you have stumbled into that no this is saying anyone who is living like that who professes to know god but is living in unrighteousness will inherit the kingdom of god he's saying you're deceived now it doesn't matter whether we want to hear that that's not really the point the point is he's warning us to believe that puts you in the deceived category you have lied to yourself you are lying to others all right let's go over to galatians chapter 5 okay so galatians chapter 5 and i want to look at verses 19 so start at verse 19 and i'm going to read through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, there's your deception and false teaching, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I told you beforehand. He's saying, look, I've already told you this before. Now I'm having to repeat myself. Just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You are not on the path to eternal life. You are not going to heaven. Pay attention to one of the words there, idolatry, idols, idols. It's the no other gods before me commandment. This is what's happening. Look, when Jesus says no other gods before me, this isn't like I'm lined up at Chick-fil-A and you're standing in front of me and I'm behind you. He's not saying, oh, you can say you're a Christian, you believe in me with Jesus, and then behind me you can also hold on to the New Age, to things that deal with the demonic realm, witchcraft, sorcery, Buddha, Hinduism, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Whatever other God, whatever other way, it can't be, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus plus this. I follow Jesus, plus I incorporate these other things. That word in the Hebrew, thou shalt have no other gods before me, means in his presence. His, it shouldn't even be in front of his face to where he can see it in your life at all. Right? This is what he's saying. So if you bring anything else to yoke it with him, you are an idolater. He's saying you have put idols in front of me. Something else that's a god. He will not share his glory with another. Go with me now to Isaiah. So Isaiah 48. And let's look at verse 22. Isaiah 48. Verse 22. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. No what? The Hebrew word there used shalom shalom 
right? Shalom is what is being said. And that literally means the word shalom in Hebrew would be rest, peace. Guess what the wicked are not doing? Resting in peace. It's this thing we we love, this phrase we love to say. But for the wicked, the unbelieving, the disobedient, he tells us in his word, there is no peace. That means no rest for the wicked, says the Lord, not says Stephanie. Right? So here we have to understand um, Carla, right, you cannot lose your salvation if we're genuinely saved, right? Scripture is meant to give us a picture of if we are genuinely saved. That's why we're to examine ourselves, right? So the wicked are those who are not saved, but many will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, saying they believe they're saved, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. They didn't lose their salvation. They were never really saved. We looked at this with hell last week and the man, the speechless man who stood there and showed up believing he was supposed to be at the wedding banquet and then he was thrown into hell. So again, this is where it's important that we're testing our self back to scripture and we're making sure we understand scripture, right? So what makes us wicked? Not just We're not, not the wicked just because we say we believe in Jesus. It's our faith is evidenced by our fruit, our actions, and that's what lines up with whether we're the wicked or not. So that's what we're looking at tonight. All right, but if we're genuinely saved, then you're absolutely right. The Lord will not lose one of his sheep, and this is our future abode. Yes, Alicia, this is part two. Last week was the reality of hell. So this is part two. That last week taught about the abode of the wicked, the unbelievers, the disobedient. This week is talking about the future abode for believers, for the obedient in Christ, right? All right, getting back. Shalom, no peace. All right, now go with me to Acts, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Here's what this scripture says, all right? Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Right? So tell me, according to all these scriptures that we're looking at, and then finishing with Acts 4, who else, what other God, what other name can we find salvation in to receive eternal life. What other name? According to the scripture, he says there is no other name, right? There's no other name. You can't claim another religious name or another um, belief system and say, but that means it's taking me to God. That, that means... I'm going to heaven. I'm going to rest in peace when I die. Scripture after scripture has told us. Scripture after scripture has told us Jesus is the only way. There is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. Matthew 7, 
14, enter through the narrow gate, for narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and few find it. So how do we know if we're eternally saved, right? It's not confusing. Confusing people is lying to them and simply saying, just pray and say you believe in Jesus and you're good. That's confusing people. What's not confusing people is sitting still and abiding in the whole of Scripture so that we understand genuine salvation, right? So what we don't want to do, which has happened in this apostate generation, and you've got a lot of false converts, a lot of false converts, as we've told people, come, just say the name of Jesus, say a prayer, and then they go and they live like the world, and their life is actually against the Word of God, and they will be the ones that you have loved into hell. They will be the speechless, as we learned last week with the wicked, because someone lied to them. And Jesus will say, how did you get in here? How did you get in here without a wedding garment? You profess to call me Lord, but your life, your actions, they were lawlessness. Away from me, you evildoer. My job is to point us back to the entire word of God so that you're following the true Jesus and so that you enter in to the kingdom of God and you're not speechless, right? Not speechless. And there will be many false prophets who will teach the wrong thing about Jesus. That's why when we come together on She Rises, we are only looking at Scripture alone. And we're not picking out one Scripture. We're not going to pick out just one Scripture and build a teaching around it. We're going through the Old and the New Testament, and we're keeping it all in context. Right? How we know we're not saved. Exactly, Amanda. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ and his work that he completed. The works will be the evidence, the fruit that is bore from someone who has genuine faith. So we can't separate the two. We cannot separate the two. But your works aren't what's saving you. Your faith alone is what is saving you. And that faith is in Christ alone, his work that was completed. And from that, the Holy Spirit will produce work in you as the evidence that you have genuine faith. All right, we're going to look at that, Susan, tonight. We'll end up looking at that. All right, let's get back on track with our scripture. So if scripture repeats these truths over and over again, how do we end up stuck believing that all paths lead to heaven regardless of what or who we believe? See, this is one of the great deceptions in our generation, this idea of universalism, that it really doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus as long as you say you believe in Jesus. Or that you can have Jesus and some other God. Or that your religion is a right religion. How do we know Christianity is even the right religion? How do I know? If someone could say, how do I know my religion's not the right religion? Well, that's why I tell you. You better spend a lot of time in prayer and studying the word of God. And asking him to reveal it to you. Because I have spent years studying. And I can tell you. They're not even close to the same. 
Yes, I've studied the Quran. I've studied New Age stuff, Buddhism. I'm not recommending that to you. I'm just saying that was my calling. And I can tell you, they're not related. <laughs> they're not even close. Even if there's a little bit of truth, which is what Satan loves to do, they lead us away. They lead us away. They're not leading you to heaven. They're leading you away from eternal life. All right. So we, if, if now we can come to that understanding that Jesus said he is the only way, that it's a narrow path, that it's a narrow gate, that there is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. If we understand all those very simple terms, we next have to determine, all right, well, we have chosen the narrow way. We um, have put our faith in Jesus, Yeshua, and his name alone. In his work. We put our faith in that. So then what awaits us as the believer, right? What awaits us, those who are on the narrow path, who know that there is no other name but Jesus, who have put their faith alone in his finished work? Is it a place full of clouds and gold? where our spirits float with our wings while we play harps and lie around and worship all day? Or, <laughs> I can tell you, since none of us have been there, we're going to have to stick solely with the reality of Scripture to see what he does allow us to know about it. But again, for us to do that, most of you girls know me, we're going to start back at the beginning this is where you want to have your notebook, not just your Bible. Make sure you're writing these scriptures down so you can keep them all together. So you can go back and test me and what I'm saying so you can see the whole picture. So I want to go back to the beginning because we want to know, just like we learned last week with hell, was heaven, was an eternal state even mentioned or taught in the Old Testament? Go with me to Genesis 1, 1. Genesis 1, 1. Most of you girls on this probably already have this verse memorized. But, in case you don't. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Fairly simple opening statement to Scripture. But I want you to pay attention to something there. And you can type this for me. Tell me. What did Yahweh create in the beginning? Type it out. What did he create in the beginning? And I want you to tell me specifically what you note about the first thing he created that's listed. What do you note about the first thing he created that is listed? What did Yahweh create, and what do you note about what he created? Perfect do. The heavens. What do you note about that word? Someone tell me. Pay attention to it closely. What do you notice about the word? Bingo, Catherine. It is plural. It's not heaven and earth. It does not say God created heaven and earth. 
it says the heavens. In Hebrew, the word is shamiam, S-H-A-M-A-Y-I-M. It is plural. I want to tell you what it means. More than one. Very good. It actually has plural meanings in the Hebrew. First, meaning sky. The sky where you see the birds or the fowl or the clouds. Number two, the ether, the higher ether, stars above. The place where you see the planets and the galaxies, outer space. The abode of God, the dwelling place. All right? Well, let's make sure that's true. So I'm going to give you a couple of scriptures in the Old Testament that we're going to see where this teaching, this idea, is actually consistently taught. So go with me first to Genesis chapter 9. Okay, Genesis 9, and I want to look at verse 2 first. Here's what it says. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, and on all that move on the earth, and all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. Look, on every bird of the air, there's that word, shemim, meaning in the heaven. All right? So we automatically know that that Hebrew word used there, the heavens, is referring to the sky. There is your first heaven. All right, I want you to go with me now Back to Genesis 1, Genesis 1, and I want to just look at verse 17. All right, here's what it says. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. What is he talking about here? What is he talking about? The great lights, the moon, the sun, the stars. He put them in the heavens. Okay, this is the second heaven. This is the galaxy. This is outer space where we would go. Same word, same Hebrew word, the heavens. All right. Now I want you to go with me to Genesis chapter 21. Okay. Chapter 21. And I'm just going to look at verse 17. Here's what the word of the Lord says. And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her what ails you Hagar fear not for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is same word heavens heaven tell me first and foremost how many heavens plural sense are listed here for us in the scripture as we're reading through the scriptures the location that it's given us how many heavens plural are listed here for us somebody tell me somebody tell me because i know you got it i'm letting you girls some of you girls do some of the teaching mm -hmm. Based on what you read. Bingo, Emily. Three. Three. Okay. Now, go with me to 2 Corinthians 12. Flip to the New Testament for a minute. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2. Here's Paul. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago 
whether in body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Where do you think Paul was speaking of when he tells us in 2 Corinthians that the man in the body or out of the body, he does not know whether it was a vision or whether he is physically by a spirit caught up. He was caught up to the third heaven. Paul, a Jew, clearly aware of three different levels of the heavens, the sky, the galaxy, outer space, the abode of God, the place beyond where God physically dwells. All right. Where do you think Paul is talking about? In the third heaven. He's talking about in the presence of God. He went to the abode of God where God currently dwells. So I want to ask you this. How else? How else is an eternal state with God described in the Old Testament. All right, we understand there's plural heavens. There's three different levels of heaven that we're understanding. But what else in the Old Testament is talked about? And I think you're going to find this pretty interesting. I want you to go with me to start to a very famous chapter, Psalm 23. Psalm 23. And I want to look at verse 6. This was pretty eye-opening to me last week as I wrote this. Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. House of the Lord forever. Bayith Yehovah Arek. Bayith Yehovah Orek, house of the Lord forever. Bayith, meaning the dwelling place of God, the courts, the palace, a family. Orek, a length of time, meaning forever. Think about this. David has given us this eschatological future point of the hope of that while he is alive, mercy and goodness is going to follow him because of Yahweh, but he shall dwell in his presence, in his house, in his abode, in his palace forever. It's like Esther. If you studied with me, Esther, who dwelled in the courts, in the palace of her king, of her bridegroom. Ruth, if you studied with me, who dwells and stays and lies at the feet of her kinsman redeemer in his field as he keeps, keeps watch over her, his presence. David, moving from the shepherd to the part of Psalm 23, depicting a host, the host of whom he hopes to continue in his presence and dwell in his house through his hospitality forever. Go with me now to Psalm 73. The same one. We're going to look at a few things that David teaches us. Psalm 73. I just want to look at verse 24. He says, you will guide me with your counsel. And afterward, 
receive me to glory. Kabaud is the Hebrew word used here. In other words, while I am on this earth, you are going to guide me by your counsel, by your light, by your word, by your truth. But afterwards, when you are done with that, I am arriving to the destination, into your presence, into glory. Kabaud, glory, listen to this, means honor, dignity, abundance. David's saying, you are going to receive me into your presence, into your house, filling me with honor and dignity and abundance. I shall not want. I shall not want. Listen to me. The arrival to the destination was never the burden of the sheep. but It was always the charge of the shepherd. David knew that. You shall lead me. You shall guide me. You shall receive me to glory, to the honor, dignity, abundance. Go with me now to Psalm 38. Psalm 38. I mean, I'm sorry. I apologize. Psalm 36, verse 8. Psalm 36, verse 8. So this is one that really blew my mind. Psalm 36, verse 8. Listen to this. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. First of all, did you hear that? In the fullness of your house, there is abundance. They are abundantly satisfied. Ruth, <laughs> Esther, in your courts, in your palace, in your house. But that's not the most astounding part to this all who shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, who shall be carried and received into his glory. No, 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 it's not just that. The most astounding part is the second part of that verse. And you give them drink from the river of your pleasures, your delights. Look that up. Look up the word for delights, pleasures, there in the Hebrew. Do you know what the word is? It is the root word, the Hebrew word, Eden, meaning the paradise of God. You are returning to paradise, to the original plan for mankind. As a believer in Christ who has chosen to follow him, you are returning to Eden. And he tells you that David is teaching us that here. This is his future hope in the midst of despair. When he has stumbled, when his enemies are coming against him, when everything in his life feels like it's crashing down around him. In the midst of darkness, in the shadow of the valley of death, I shall not want. No, but I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And where is that house? Eden, paradise, overflowing with 
abundance. Go with me to Isaiah, Isaiah 26. And I want to look just at verse 19. Isaiah 26, verse 19, the word of the Lord says, your dead, this is talking to the Lord, to, to God, your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead or shall give birth to the dead. What's going to happen to the dead in Yahweh? What's going to happen to the dead in Yahweh? Not the wicked dead. Last week we learned they stay in Sheol, right? They stay in Sheol, the wicked. They are in torment until judgment day when they're actually cast into hell. But this is for believers. What happens to the dead in Christ? It says their bodies will rise. Now this doesn't mean their spirit, okay? We'll see that in a minute. This means they're fleshly bodies that have returned to the dust of the earth. Their bodies will be made new. They will rise. They will awaken. And they will sing or shout for joy. Yes, they will live. The earth will give birth to the dead. See, since our physical bodies right now that we are dwelling in were created from the ground and to the ground they will return, Yahweh will resurrect the flesh again upon this earth, likened to a new birth. I want to look at a couple of scriptures. Go with me to Genesis chapter 3. Look with me at verse 19. We got a lot of scriptures tonight, girls, so you're just going to have to hold on to get the beauty of this all. All right. Genesis 3:19. And the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And that's your flesh. Hear me. This is talking solely about the physical temple of your body, the shell of your body. All right, now go with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes. Oops, sorry. Chapter 12. And I want to look at verse 7. 12, 7. Then the dust will return so the your flesh will return to the dirt to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it where does our flesh go where does our flesh go who knows to the ground back to the earth to the dust where does the spirit go? What does it tell us? According to Ecclesiastes, where does the spirit return? To God who gave it. Your spirit is not laying with you in the ground, returning to the dust. That's your flesh that's going to rot away. For the believer, 
This is why last week, again, when we studied hell, says you will not abandon my soul to Hades, to Sheol. The wicked are. No, 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 not the believer. Not the believer. You are not. You are not in any way confined to the ground. All right. Um, Leanne, that I don't know. The Bible doesn't speak about that. But that to me, I'm not sure that could be any different than if I burned up in a house fire or a car fire. However, our body is going to be destroyed, right? It's going to be destroyed. It's going to rot away back into the ground. So it doesn't even matter because when we're resurrected, yes, in our same flesh, it will not be this flesh. It will be the perfected, the new flesh, right? All right. So uh, now I want to look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want you to listen, starting at verse 35, to what the word of the Lord says. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one kind of flesh, flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial, meaning here on earth, is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. And there is a spiritual body. 1 Corinthians 15, that was 35 through 44. Look, here's what he's saying. The body that is resurrected is nothing like the body that you're currently in, right? Our journey, though, here on earth is not an end for the believer. In fact, it's just the beginning. It is a new beginning into abundant life with God and his people in paradise. In fact, we looked at Daniel 12 last week, 1 through 3, and we learned in Daniel 12, 1 through 3, that there are only two inheritances for the people who rise from the grave, from the dust, when their flesh is raised. Some will inherit, it says, eternal life, others to eternal shame and contempt, meaning hell. We only have two inheritances. There's only two options. Finally, I want you to go with me to Job, to the book of Job, chapter 19. 
Job, most scholars believe, is the oldest book in the Bible completely. Many say he was pre-flood. It was something Noah actually had knowledge of, of Job and information before the flood. To me, that's irrelevant. The fact is, whether he was pre-flood or post-flood, they do believe that Job is actually the oldest book in the Bible. So he is probably one of the oldest people um, that we we look back on um, of his account in scripture after creation of what Moses shares with us in Genesis. But Look, what I wanted to say was this is Job himself in the Old Testament towards the beginning of time saying what he is about to say. Starting at verse 25 through 27. And he says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, your Redeemer, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, after my skin, my flesh, after it's I'm dead, after it's done, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. What is Job's hope here about his future reality when he says, my Redeemer shall stand upon the earth? What is Job from the beginning of time trying to get mankind to understand? What is his very hope that kept him in the midst of his basic depression? What was his hope? That after my flesh is destroyed, struck off is what that means in the Hebrew. My Redeemer, he shall be standing on the earth. And I shall stand in my Basar, B-A-S-A-R in the Hebrew. Besar, my flesh. But do you understand what that Hebrew word means? Flesh from freshness, meaning a new self. He's saying, I shall stand in my new flesh, my new self, and I shall see God face to face with my own eyes. Well, go with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And guys, I want you to hear something in verse 12 from Paul. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. What is the comparison that Paul is making here in the New Testament that lines up with what Job it just taught us at the beginning of the Old Testament. What is the comparison? What is the same consistent truth from the Old Testament to the New Testament? What is he saying? Look, currently here on earth in this flesh that shall rot away, that shall fall off in this flesh, I only see in part. I only know in part. I can only prophesy to you in part. 
There's many in religion that will say, well, that just meant the Bible. That when the Bible was canonized, then everything came into the fullness of God. But that's not true. That's not true at all. Look, I'm not saying that there's anything you can add to this word of God. You can't. It is complete. But even the scriptures that God gave us are only in part. In fact, he said the world could not contain the books if everything was written about Yeshua and what he did and about Yahweh and their creation and what they did and all their works through history and what heaven looks like. We only know, The Bible only gives us in part. And yet what it's the fullness of is the way to Jesus. So I can fully know the right way to get to salvation and to eternal life. But I only know in part. I can only prophesy in part because I'm in this temporary body. I can only teach you as women or children in part because I'm in this temporary body and I don't fully know. But what I do know in part, I can teach in its fullness. But oh, Paul says, but then, then I will stand and I will see God face to face. And I will fully know him. And I will fully be known. How we are here currently on this earth is very different from what it will be like in eternity. So if we know, if tonight thus far we have gauged that only the believer in Jesus Christ alone will enter into eternal life, and if the Old Testament has given us a picture of the heavens and of an eternal state that it actually exists with a Redeemer who will stand upon the earth, then what does the New Testament teach us? What does it further reveal? What is the revelation that came about to be through the New Testament about this future abode for us? We're going to finish tonight looking in the New Testament now to discover through Scripture what this eternal state, what this house of the Lord, this dwelling place with the Lord actually teaches us. Let's get started. John chapter 14. We're going to look at verse 2. The very first thing that we discover John 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, oikia in the Greek, literally just means in his abode, in his dwelling place. In my Father's house, there are many Dwelling places. Monet, M-O-N-E. What does that word mean? It literally means mansions, residences. In the Greek, they would have understood exactly what Jesus was saying to them. In my father's house, there are many mansions, residences. Look, we think about the temporary things here on earth that consume us or concern us or we desire after. I don't know, maybe you drive by a house and you think, wow, look at that house. I'd love to have that. Or maybe you know some builder, some carpenter, 
um, uh, who's a luxury builder and you think, man, I just wish, I just wish I had the money to be able to afford that builder, that carpenter to design and build this house for me. How amazing that would be. And you know what? <laughs> All of that is perishing. It has no value. It's so temporary. But Jesus says, oh no, and, and my money and our abode you have many monets many mansions but let me tell you something about these mansions see they're being built by the master carpenter you couldn't afford him <laughs> uh, the richest man on this earth couldn't afford this designer this creator this architect this carpenter a lot of us will go oh yeah those things don't concern me uh, well, I don't see why the Lord would want us to have that. If it were not true, I would have told you. If it were not true, I would have told you. You're not going to be floating on clouds. <laughs> You're just not. It's a misconception. I don't know what your mansion is going to look like. I just know what your heavenly address is going to be. And we'll see that tonight as we finish the study. But what I am going to tell you is for whatever good reason, the king of this universe says you're still going to have dwelling places. You're still going to have mansions where you will be hospitable. Hospitable. Hospitality will be shown. Visiting will happen. Relationships will take place. And it will all be done in your own mansion, your own residence. Hedomozel, meaning to make ready. He says, I'm preparing that place for you. Currently, right now, currently, right now, he is helping you make ready. Susan, it is so wonderful to help the needy, right? It is such a gift to give and to receive. And yet, even if the Lord blesses people with possessions here, King David, King Solomon, Abraham, Job, some of the richest men on this planet who were lovers of God, right? And yet even in all their blessings, they shared blessings. So whether we want those things or have those things or we don't, it's not a symbol and of any way of our worth and our value of what is to come. And what that tells me is the Lord does want us to store up our treasures for in heaven, for eternity, where they're going to last, where they mean something, where you are going to have them, not because you need them, but because the Father wants to lavish it on you. Just because that's how he is. He loves his children. He cares for his bride. Go with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to look at verse 9. But as it is written, I has not seen an ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those 
who love him. Listen to me. We could sit here all night and talk about mansions and residences that the master carpenter, architect, designer is building for us. What heaven is going to look like, because we're going to see in a minute, we do get some descriptions. We could sit here all night and talk about it. And yet the word of God has told us, even in that, in the limited knowing in part that he gives us, your eye has never physically seen on this earth what eternity is actually going to look it's going to look like ear. No one has ever described it to you. And the human mind could never, the greatest artist on this planet could never dream up or render an image of what eternity is actually going to be like or look like. The beauty is indescribable. The wealth unfathomable. The experience it's just not even something that this earth has even known or heard of. So he's letting us know everything that you know right now is such a small temporary picture of the hope that you have. Go with me to Luke now, Luke 23. Luke 23. I just want to look at verse 43. This actually is about the way to heaven again. But I want you to hear what Jesus was saying to the thief on the cross. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Why am I telling you this? Because here's what I want you to understand. This is as the thief who had just professed his faith in Christ was about to take his last breath and die. And Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, someone to distort that scripture over a comma. I can't get into that teaching tonight. That really would be irrelevant when you study the whole of Scripture. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because he's saying, just like me, only your flesh, you're not bound to the grave. You're not abandoned to Sheol or to Haiti. The spirit, as we learn in Ecclesiastes, the flesh returns to the ground. The spirit returns to God who gave it. Today, your spirit, when you take that last breath, returns with me to paradise. Why? Your spirit that houses, this flesh houses, your spirit is everything. It's what causes you to see. It's what causes you to hear. It is your conscience. It's what causes you to know, to have wisdom. It's not your brain. It's your conscience, your spirit housed within your fleshly brain that will deteriorate. No, he's saying today that will return with me to paradise where you will rest, where you will know, where you will see the preparations for eternity taking place. Where is that? He says, with me. You will be with me in paradise. Hebrews, go with me to Hebrews 11. And I want to look at verse, just verse 16. Hebrews 11, verse 16. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. What is God preparing for his people? A city. Where is he preparing it? In heaven. So let me ask you a question. Is this a city just of gold? 
up in heaven among the clouds with little rooms, compartments for each spirit to roam around in? Well, I want to look more at the description. Of this city and then I want to understand its location and reality that's so true Emily you don't have a soul you are a soul you have a body CS Lewis very brilliant because that is the absolute truth all right I want you to go with me to Revelation 21 your girl, girls are gonna have to hold on because we we probably got about 12 more scriptures to go through, all right, in order to get to the end of this. Now you see why I divided this lesson up, right? I told you if we sat here last week, we would have been here for three hours studying the reality of heaven and the reality of hell. All right, Revelation 21, I'm going to read 1 through 5. Pay very close attention to what's being said. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven... And the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and he will be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death and sorrow nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write. For these words are true and faithful. Listen, look with me at Revelation 21, starting at verse 1. What are the two things seen here? Tell me, what are the two things in verse 1 of Revelation 21? What are the two things seen here? What are they? Type it out. You should notice. There was a new heaven and a new earth. Kainos in the Greek for new. Do you know what that means? Fresh, unworn, unheard of, superior to what it succeeds. All right. Well, what happened to the first heaven and the first earth, meaning this earth right now that you and I are dwelling on, we're sitting here, we're looking at, what happened to that? Apertomea in the Greek, it departed, it passed away, it was purified, refined, made new. Did you hear that? A new earth a new earth is made but before we continue to look at this tell me looking at revelation 21 what is the one thing that is told to us is no longer a part of the new earth what is no longer found what is no longer a part of the new earth 
you will notice it says the sea, the ocean, thalassa in the Greek, thalassa, literally means the sea in general, the ocean. Now at first, you may think it's strange as a water lover like me that no sea or ocean exists in our future. But you're going to have to understand what the sea, the ocean, actually represents to the Jew, to Israel, in the Old Testament. I want you to go with me to Psalm 46. Psalm 46, okay? Go with me. And I want you to listen, starting at verse 1, okay? Here's what it says. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Stop right there. Luke 21, 25 tells us in the very last days that there will be signs in the heavens, these tumultuous signs, and the sea will roar with perplexity. Even the beast is said, the Antichrist is said to rise out of the sea. Leviathan, who represents Satan and his kingdom, is the dweller of the sea. Noah, our land did not used to be divided. There was not this much water on earth. Because of the punishment, the great judgment, the ocean exists. The sea exists to the expanse of what we see now. Therefore, you have to understand that biblically and historically to the Jews, the sea represented trouble, punishment, death. It's not a good thing. It was not a good thing. But lest you're left thinking that water itself will no longer exist or inhabit the beauty of eternity, you only, you only need to read on through verse 4 of Psalm 46. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Look with me at Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Revelation 22, 1 and 2. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Listen, what a beautiful picture of the end of the curse upon this earth from the judgment of the floodwaters of what is tumultuous and fearful and full of death 
And instead, now we're giving this imagery, this picture of a body of flowing water from rivers and streams as clear as crystal that symbolize peacefulness, tranquility, a symbol of life, that which gives life, the water that flows, refreshment, eternal refreshment. As the deer pants for the water of the river, as he leads us by the rivers, by the streams, I shall not want. But looking at Revelation 21.3, tell me, still, pay attention. This is so important. What comes down out of heaven according to verse 3? In Revelation 21, according to verse 3, what comes down out of heaven. Somebody tell me. I don't know why it wants to keep giving me that. What comes down out of heaven? I want somebody to, to type it. Revelation 23. And I heard a loud voice. It's not a loud voice. I just heard a loud voice from heaven. What comes down out of heaven. It actually goes back into verse 2. Starts at verse 2. Going in to verse 3. Tell me. The holy city. The new Jerusalem. It comes down out of heaven. To Israel. The Israel that we know today. The landmass of Israel that you can go visit right now. Upon that. Upon the new earth, Israel will still exist as the landmass. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, right now is in the third heaven being prepared. It is going to come down out of heaven and be planted on earth. Tell me, what is the purpose of this new city coming out of heaven to earth? What is the purpose? Look at scripture to tell me. Tell me, you have to know this yourself. What is the purpose of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, brought down to earth, set on earth in Israel today? The earth that will be made new, the new earth. What is the purpose of the new Jerusalem, the holy city? I know somebody's got it. And I'm not moving on till it's tight because I need to know at least one of my ladies can declare the truth of the word. Tell me, what is the purpose of this new city? Behold, the tabernacle of God. Tabernacle. The abode, the dwelling place of God, and he will dwell with them. Did you hear that? Once he dwells on earth with his people, what has he told us in Revelation 21 will no longer exist on the new earth. There will be no more tears. There will be no such thing as death. There will be no more mourning or crying, pain, sorrow. 
You will never again experience sadness, depression, anxiety, pain, or suffering. All those things will have passed away with the old earth, with the old order of earth. Do you understand that? Go with me now in Revelation 21 down to verse 10. Because we now know that the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the holy city is coming down out of heaven. It is going to be built, placed on earth in Israel, in Israel. But what does the city look like? Believe it or not, Scripture does not leave us blind to that fact. For some reason, God wants us to have an idea of exactly what this is going to look like. Go with me, starting at verse 10. Let's listen to the Word of God. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, to measure its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, its length as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. But the construction of the wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third Chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the fifth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprias, the eleventh jacinth, I, I don't know how to say that word, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was just one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass but I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it the Lamb is its light and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor into it its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter in it 
anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Listen to me. This is the dwelling place, the abode of God. It needs no temple. There is no temple there. Why? The temple in the Old Testament, it is a religion. It's the purpose of religion. The temple was the place in the sinful, corrupt earth where the spirit of God, the presence of God would come to dwell with sinful man. That's not on the new earth. Therefore, God, Yahweh, Yeshua, the lamb, they are the physical temple. They are now dwelling here. They need no temple. The city will have no need for the sun or the moon. Because the light of their glory radiates so brightly that from just their actual presence, all who enter in can see. Listen to me. This is the exact opposite of what we learned last week about the wicked who are going to dwell in eternal darkness, eternally blind, never able to see again, cast away from the presence of God, never to be able to pray to him, to call out to him, to get access. Here, here as a believer, you are in constant light. You will always be able to see, to fully know, to fully be known, to always call out to them, to fellowship with them, to be intimate, never cast away from their presence. Knowing this then, what can we conclude tonight about our eternal inheritance? I mean, are we just going to dwell in this city and the new Jerusalem forever? Well, stay with me. In Revelation 21, what did we just say in 24 through 27? And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There will be no night there. And then look with me at Revelation 22. Revelation 22, starting at verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face. His name shall be on their foreheads. And there will be no night there. They don't need the lamp or the light of the sun. The Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. Listen to me. What he has just said to us. Its gates will never be shut. Let me ask you a question. If the holy city, the new Jerusalem is our heaven, and that's the only place we dwell, why does it need gates? I mean, you would just think you just need parameters or walls, right? We're never leaving there. Why do we need gates? Not only that, why do these gates need to not be shut? Why do they need to be open? I mean, are we going somewhere? Are we leaving? And why, how will the nations come to it and walk by its light? Because it is not our only dwelling place. But it will be the most splendid place upon this earth to ever visit. It will be the vacation destination for, of all humanity. 
look, its gates will never be shut. You will always have access to it. You will always be able to go in to see the Lord, to talk to him, to fellowship, whatever it is, to serve him, whatever we are. And yet we will walk by his light upon the earth that radiates from that holy city. Hear me when I tell you this. We are not going to live in the sky at all. Look with me at Isaiah. Isaiah 65. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. And here's what it says, or here's what the word of the Lord says. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Did you hear that? Look around you right now. Look out your window. When you get up in the morning, I want you to look outside. Take it all in and enjoy it because he's just told you this earth will never be remembered again. It will never come to mind. It will be as if it never existed. You're not going to feel sorrowful when you pass into paradise and when you're in eternity. You're not going to remember the pain that you endured here if someone hurt you. You're not going to remember the suffering you had to endure if someone hurt your feelings. None of that. It will never be remembered or come to mind ever again. The only thing you will know is the new earth. That's it. Look with me now at, at the very next chapter in Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, just verse 22, he tells us. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain or endure, so shall your descendants, this is to Israel, the true Israel, and your name remain. It will always exist. And finally, look with me at 2 Peter in the New Testament. 2 Peter, and I want you to look at chapter 3. I'm just going to read verse 13. 2 Peter 3, verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Listen to me. If you don't get anything else tonight, I need you to take away so you never walk in the same misconception ever again. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 21-1, earth was always meant to be our home, and it will always be our home. We will just now return to our original relationship. You are not going to heaven in the sky. The only time you were there is if you take your last breath in this body currently while this old earth exists and your spirit will go to be in paradise as you rest with him while he is finishing, while he is preparing, getting everything ready for the new earth. 
but we don't go to heaven. Heaven comes to earth. Do you hear me? This was always meant to be your home. You are always going to live on earth, just not this corrupted earth that we sold to Satan by our sin. No, you're going to live on the new earth where righteousness dwells. As we return to our new relationship, redeemed, bought back, the title deed to the earth, recaptured by Yahweh himself, so that heaven and earth are now united. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 verse 10, I hope now finally will make sense to you. Paul says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, when it all is all over, that he, Yeshua, Jesus, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Listen to me. Heaven and earth will never be separated again. Heaven will come to earth. We will be back in Eden where Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day with the Lord. They knew him face to face. He dwelled here with them. He dwelled here with them. Eden, fully known, unashamed. We will now all be family. Family that loves each other, that wants each other. You're not going to hate the get-togethers. You're not going to be dreading the family get-togethers ever again. We will all be Family, which is why scripture says what it says in Matthew 22. Look with me at verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Listen to me. We can read that. For those who are single, it, it may not matter. For those who are married, we might say, that makes me really sad. But it's not going to make you sad because the former things of this earth will not be remembered. The only reason we have marriage on this earth now is for an example of the covenant of God and to procreate. We don't need to do that on the new earth. It will be fully populated. But listen, what I'm trying to tell you is when it says we will be like the angels, are we going to get wings? Are we going to be walking around like angels? No. He's saying you will be like angels in this regard. Angels do not marry and they do not procreate and repopulate. We have no need for that because we are all going to be family. We're all going to love each other equally and the same. We're going to be wanted. There are not going to be any favorites. Brothers and sisters Yes, do in Christ. Restored in our perfected bodies, just as we are known now, but in a perfected body, living on earth, on earth for God's glory, just as we were originally designed. Now, as we close tonight, 
I want to finish with now that we know what is the hope of the abode for the believer in Christ. You are not leaving this earth. You may temporarily dwell in paradise with God and rest. You are coming back here. You are going to have a mansion, some residence. You're going to be living on this earth, right? But if we're going to have a new, restored, perfected body, what is that going to look like and what are we going to be doing? That's what I want to close with in these last few scriptures. Because scripture does give us an idea of what we're going to look like and what we're going to be doing as we dwell for eternity on this earth. Go with me to Philippians first. Philippians chapter 3. Sorry. Yeah, Philippians chapter 3, making sure I had the right thing. And I want to look at verse 21. Okay, just verse 21. Here's what it says. Talking about Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Now listen, now look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and I want to look at verses 50 through 53. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 53. Here's what he says. <clears throat> Sorry. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Listen, let me ask you a question. He's telling us we're going to put on the same body of Christ that Christ had in his resurrected body. So let me ask you this. Was Jesus just a spirit when he appeared in his resurrected body to reveal himself to his disciples and the other 500? Was he? And did he have wings? Like, did he show up with wings? Well, we need to look at Luke 24 to discover the answer to that question. Look at Luke 24, starting at verse 39. Starting at verse 39, I'm only going to read 39 and then drop down to 42 through 43. Behold, Jesus said, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have starting at 42. So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. In Romans 8, verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Listen, this is Jesus. In his resurrected, perfected body, he says, look, I'm back. I'm back. I'm resurrected. I'm in a perfected body. But it is flesh and bones. It's not just spirit. 
You're still going to have your new flesh and bone body that looks like you now, but it will be perfected, incorruptible. It cannot be harmed. It cannot be damaged. It can never get sick. It could never die. But notice what else it can do. Go to Luke 22, verse 16. For I say to you, Jesus said, I will no longer eat, eat of it, the Passover meal, until I eat it again anew with you in the kingdom of God, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. We just read when he appeared, they gave him fish and honeycomb and he ate. I will not eat again with you until we eat it anew in the kingdom of God, in eternal life. When we're in our, when we're all sitting around in our resurrected, glorified bodies. Go with me to Isaiah. This is one of my favorite. Oh my goodness. Go with me to Isaiah 25. This is one of the most beautiful passages, starting at verse 6. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wine on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, that's meat, of well-refined wines. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Blessed is he who is invited to partake of the marriage supper of the lamb. We will eat in eternity, you're still going to enjoy food. That's probably why us church people love potluck so much, right? Like we love food. There must be a reason for that. But listen, on the new earth, what we're planting, what we're harvesting, what we're eating, what we're enjoying from house to house banquet, the Lord, the King, the bridegroom himself preparing choice banquets for us to feast. We don't need the food to live. You're not going to be worried. Am I going to get food poisoning? Does this have to be gluten-free? Do I have an allergy to this? Will this make me fat? Will it give me diabetes? I don't like that. None of that matters. Food will only be given now on the new earth for pleasure. It's not here to sustain your life. It is solely given in abundance for your enjoyment. Oh, Susan, I did. <laughs> I have a feeling the food in heaven will taste even better than the food that I had in Nashville. All right. So look, not only that, but there's one other thing we do know about Jesus and his resurrected body. And don't ask me why scripture want us, wants us to know this. It just did, so I'm not going to leave it out. John, look with me at the book of John, chapter 20, verse 26. Here's what it said. And after eight days, this is after his resurrection, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being locked, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Why is that included in the scripture? Why do I care that the doors were locked? 
Like, why don't you just tell me? Here's Jesus. He's standing upon us and he says, peace be to you. Well, clearly he's letting us know that in his resurrected body, Jesus can just appear wherever he wants. Why not just say the door? I mean, he came through the door. The doors were locked. And yet, even in that, no one went and opened the door for him. And yet, Jesus now just enters the house and he stands there. Peace be to you. Somehow in our resurrected body, we only get a small glimpse of an image of that we can just go through things, right? Even in our, it, it floors me. Like, again, I know our minds can't even comprehend it. He says, here I am. I'm flesh and bones. Fill me. I eat. I'll digest food, right? I don't know. But I can still go through things. Here's the deal. At the end of this all, no doubt, we will have a literal body. We will still recognize each other. We will look like ourselves. But like Christ, our body will be indestructible. It will put on the perfect. It will only know righteousness. It will never think evil again it will never be tempted to do evil it will never know evil it will never suffer it will never have sickness it will never know death it will never know sorrow it will never know pain or difficulty or loneliness ever again for you see daniel chapter 7 verse 27 tells us this very truth from Daniel himself. Then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. What a reminder that God's kingdom under his authority will be everlasting as we dwell upon this earth. This is heaven, not the current one right now. It's corrupted. This is passing away. The new earth is your heaven. It is your eternal abode. And while he has limited the information given to us, because we are not perfected yet, what we do know is that we will dwell eternally in his light, fully able to see, fully able to know, to eat, to enjoy each other, to travel, to visit, to love, to be wanted, to feel immeasurable joy and happiness to rest even in our labors of reigning and serving and working it will no longer be done to get ahead it will solely be done for joy and pleasure because we enjoy whatever job is giving to us as we serve him for all eternity, working and eating and fellowshipping and worshiping, enjoying the beauty of this earth, resting by the streams of the river and the city, the trees that bear fresh fruit every month that yield its season for your pleasure to enjoy. And yet we cannot even begin to comprehend how truly 
wonderful and beautiful eternity on this earth. Your home that actually does await you is going to be. For as Ecclesiastes chapter 1 says, the very last verse of the night, you girls have hung in so well, says meaningless, meaningless. In other words, vanity of vanities, all is meaningless. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The reality is for you today, dear believer in Christ, the one who is obedient to Christ, who has chosen the narrow way, no other name by which you must be saved, no other idols before him, walking in obedience to him, sold out for him. Hell is not your future home. You will never know it. This earth, the new earth, where the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, comes to dwell. God, back here on earth, dwelling with us, is your future. The reality is there will be no more meaningless life under the sun, S-U-N, because we will all have eternal meaning under the sun, S-O-N. I want to thank you girls so much for joining me this week as we look at the reality of heaven. Heaven meaning earth, the new earth, not this earth. The new earth that will be refined and made new. We were always meant to dwell here. But our God will return for a second time, just as he did at his birth. But he will come back this time to tabernacle with us, to dwell among men for all eternity. What a glorious day that will be. Thank you all for joining me. Next week, I will be back on here for a one-week lesson that we are going to be doing that the Lord is leading me to teach called Walking in Forgiveness. We're just going to be digging deep into the scriptures to understand what it means as a Christian to walk in true forgiveness, to be set free so that the enemy keeps taking us back into bondage of whatever we've stumbled or how we made that mistake. What does it mean to truly be forgiven? Because above all, all people, we need to be a people walking forgiven, living in forgiveness, being set free to know what it means to be fully forgiven. After that, I will tell you, um, there will be a couple of weeks of a break. The first two weeks of December, I plan to do a two-week study. I don't know what that's going to be yet, but I should have that. And then on Thursday, January 7th, I will be announcing this on the She Rises page um, t tonight, but uh, when I get off of here. But um, the Lord has called me for the Winter Women's Bible Study. I will be teaching from the Book of Judges living boldly and differently in the face of your enemies. What does it mean for us to live boldly and differently in this last day's generation? If persecution increases and the enemy roars, how have we been called to live? 
for whatever reason the Lord wants us for such a time as this in the book of Judges. That's what we're going to be digging into starting Thursday, January 7th for our winter study. Again, thank you girls so much for joining with me in the reality of heaven, our future home. I look forward to seeing you on She Rises throughout this week and pray many blessings upon you.